The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So again, a really good morning or afternoon, wherever it might be, wherever you are. So as David said, um, we'd like to open it up for um, questions to some comments. We sent out some homework. You could uh, read the Maharahulavada Sutta about the elements, earth, water, fire, air, and Majjhima Nikaya 140, about uh, equanimity. And just wanted to open it up if people had comments or questions. And feel free for questions to raise the Zoom blue hand, your own hand, or just unmute and and speak. Everybody is uh, practicing very careful speech here. So feel free to just speak up if you'd like. On, on uh, Tuesday, Diana said we wouldn't be asking, we wouldn't be answering all questions, but it sort of appears as if possibly we have. There are <laughs> I, I have a comment. Okay. Um, I, I wish I could have gotten these uh, suttas maybe a week before the class started so I could have uh, looked at them a little more carefully. There's, there's just so much in there and it brings up so much f- forward. And thought, I mean, this morning, just like an hour ago, I looked at a few new things. I was like, oh, my God, you know, and what, how do I absorb this? Um, and also what came up, uh, what I thought about was um, this is such a wonderful chance to do these kind of studies. And I wish we could get a little momentum with this group, maybe meet once a month or, you know, get an introduction and then cogitate it for about it for a while and then come back two weeks as a smaller group uh, i think people would be sort of happy to do that and so i'm just going to offer that out to the group to maybe think about lovely suggestions and it's nice to know you're getting the bug uh that's part of our objective and just so you know we we are planning a whole series of these in the coming year and we have dates mapped out and in some cases we've started talking about the teachings and in at least one case it should be possible to provide a the sutta well in advance for for you know for reading so thanks chris for that yeah another aspect of the art of sutta study or at least teaching it is that you saw, if you looked at the suttas, that we extracted relatively small pieces out of much larger, more complicated teachings. And so there's some art in deciding that that's appropriate, you know, to not take it in the whole context. Um, That's one more dimension of uh, working with suttas. I do. Yeah. Um, it might be a safe, this is the first time that I've done this, uh, like to be in a, in a text like this. Um, and it says, um, uh, unrighteous greed. And what came to my mind was, is there a righteous greed? And what, is there some kind of something I'm not getting or how does that work? Which one of my esteemed co-teachers want to go for this, talk about this? 
David, you put your hand up. Oh, did I? I hadn't intended to. Oh, but okay. I mean, I can say this. Um, yeah, you know, one of the one of the really interesting things about this practice is that uh, there aren't judgments made, for example, about, um, uh, say, the self or selfing. In other words, the implication is that there are skillful and unskillful uses or skillful in addition to unskillful uses of self in the practice and that the practice doesn't unfold without skillful uses of self. And uh, in the case of greed, although we have a lot of associations with the word greed, there certainly is a place in our practice for wholesome aspirations. And so uh, conceivably, that's sort of a, an aspect of that, you know, a wanting, right, that can be uh, a wanting for uh, a wanting that is consistent with the progress of the path until such a time or a place or a, a moment in practice where even that can be even that wanting can be uh, let go of. Perfect. I understand that. Makes sense. Thank you. And Natalie, I see you have your blue hand up. Thank you. And hello, everyone. Warm wishes from London. Oh. Ah. On Tuesday's um, class, I love the, the phrase that was introduced, equipoise. And as I was taking notes, I, I kind of dotted the I in a rushed and, and wrong way. Um, and when I came to revisit it, it almost looked like equiposy. And that accident made me wonder if there's anything formally distinct and meaningful about how balancing is is phrasally conveyed in the Pali that I am missing in the English translations. So I guess my question is, how does the phrasing or form of the original ex itself express equanimity? Kim, do you want to say something about that? Well, um, I, I think the usual word for equanimity, and it's actually the same word for uh, the Brahma Vihara and the factor of awakening is upekka. And um, that word literally means to uh, look upon, I guess, or to view from above, something like that. That's what the word roots mean. Uh, there is used in the later teachings another word um, that uh, uh, is Tatra Maja Tata, and that is hard to spell <laughs> and is also not, um, not really used in the suttas. It has more of an implication. You can hear that word in the middle, Maja, like the Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. It has something to do with being in the middle, and it has to do with being in the middle of this and yet being balanced. And so that's kind of the implication um, of that particular word. It's a funny word and you know, I didn't say it before because I wasn't sure how to place it in the context, but since you've asked about the Pali. Um, so I think that's maybe another uh, sort of intuitive understanding we can have of equanimity is that there's, there is something about being a, standing aside and looking and having a big picture. And there's also something about being right in the middle of something, but not, but not being moved, you know, not being distracted and, and jostled by it. 
So maybe that helps a bit. If you want to add anything, Diana, please. No, no. I just love saying that word, Tatra Maja Tata. It's Tatra Maja Tata, yes. <laughs> so I see that Pasako and Henry have their hands up. Um, we're just going to uh, spend a few just a few more minutes uh, with questions. And so probably we're going to end there. So Mira, I see that you just put your hand up. But okay, okay. So um, Vipassaka. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, my question is the uh, different flavors of equanimity that we've been hearing about. Is this um, like a conventionally... Uh, accepted idea among Theravadan Buddhists, or is this more of a uh, more more recent uh, interpretation? And I'm just kind of wondering: is that is this very clear in the suttas, or is this uh, something that's uh, yeah more of it? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Vipassaka. Yeah, so the suttas do not explicitly say, okay, here's this type of equanimity that's part of a factor of awakening, and here's a type of equanimity that's part of the Brahma Viharas. It's more um, comes out of people's practice, like the experience of equanimity in these different settings have a little bit different flavor. And um, maybe we'll unpack that a little bit more today. But the Pali is exactly the same. It's still the same word, upeka. And it doesn't explicitly say that they're different in different settings in that does. And Henry. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. Yes, good morning. So I, maybe this is better felt kind of experientially, but I thought I'd add that the um, Tatra Maja Tata is a, in the Theravada Abhidhamma, it's a universal, wholesome mental factor. So it's present in, present and building in all wholesome states. So whatever you practice you do, you're going to get some equanimity. It's, it's there. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Henry. And that was the last time we picked this capstone idea, <laughs> which is also uh, kind of reflecting that sense that its uh, equanimity is uh, in small degree or big degree in all host of wholesome qualities that uh, as we practice, we'll notice that. Thank you, Yin. David? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we can maybe start the first sort of um, um, section of, of teaching today, which which has my name on it. But I'll do so by making sort of a <clears throat> segue from what Henry's just offered, and I think also from what Vipassico has has contributed. Just to say that in last uh, in Tuesday's guided, I think before, or during, or after it, I sort of made the point that. Um, that equanimity doesn't have to be some far off goal, um, but something that in, in a way we, um, we invoke and we c- cultivate in the practice, even when we close our eyes and bring our attention to what's, what's here uh, and now, that, um, that we're doing a balancing, or as Ying put it, describing the Chinese character, letting go that has um, equipoise or equanimity um, in it. And that uh, 
you know, the further exploration of that cultivation of that comes to have these different, you know, these different applications as it were, or flavors, uh, um, which sort of connects with Vipassico's question. So to, we wanted to turn our attention and uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to work a little more quickly than I had expected, but we love the questions uh, and uh, we could do just a whole class of questions. But um, <clears throat> we'd like to sort of move our focus a bit uh, from the place of equanimity among the seven factors of awakening and thus its orientation to sort of awakening or wisdom and that aspect of the practice to the ways it turns up in as one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the divine abidings, one of the places of cultivating practice that, that maybe speak more directly to the heart or that allow the heart to speak, speak more directly or express itself or find its voice, its own voice. And we could do this using numerous suttas, but we selected uh, Majjhima Nikaya 7, um, known for taking its title from, or the title we conventionally give it from, the simile of the cloth that it contains. And we sent around a version of this, a condensed version. I should mention that uh, I've condensed it and what I'm going to bring up on the screen, I further sort of edited to try to take the um, uh, archaic gender references out of it and and kind of update them a little bit. But um, let me look at my notes here. So we're moving a little bit from the orientation of equanimity as an aspect of how we meet our experience uh, to how we perhaps interact or regard other, other beings, uh, that part of our experience that maybe is um, social or that places us in a natural world of, of other, other creatures. The, um, the simile of the cloth from which the sutta takes its name, and I'm going to sort of bring up the Sutta, and, and I'm going to move through it quickly, and I hope that I can um, uh, do so without making people dizzy or uh, making things sort of too confusing. But the simile of the cloth uh, is referred to twice in the sutta here at the beginning, where it's used, and we love these, we love these similes, these images that come to us because they're frequently still relevant or they still make sense. And um, this idea that the mind has imperfections, and that when the mind is cleared of these imperfections, or again, referring to Ying's idea about letting go from the Chinese character discussion on Tuesday, that when these imperfections are let go of or loosen, that the mind becomes ready and prepared, uh, that, it, um, that it's open, that it is ready, in a sense, for, for practice and for the teachings to settle in and, and make a difference, make their transformative presence known in various ways. And um, when, a tr- when a practitioner has, it says in Majjhima Nikaya 7, given up and let go, I think we can replace a lot of these words with a synonym, let go, relinquished, relinquished various imperfections of mind. I love too that they're not like marks of evil or sin, but just imperfections you know, nothing more or less important than uh, the daily, regular imperfections that we all confront. That when the mind is clean that way, clean like a uh, cloth, that um, unwavering confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, which isn't mentioned here, can, um, 
can arise. And we then enter a path of practice. And this refers, uh, or this has a resonance with the question that David asked at the end of the session last time about, and we, we sort of responded by saying, you know, various of these texts, um, it's not maybe that they're inconsistent, but that they invite us to explore the practice in a lot of different ways. And many of them present paths of practice or different ways in and through the practice that give us kind of alternate views of what's possible. And they may fit some temperaments better or fit practice at different times in the long cycle and trends of practice in, in better ways or more productive ways at different times. But they offer things to us that we can um, make use of at, uh, when, when, they, when they're appropriate. And we can make use of them or sometimes they just arise for us. When these things have happened, when the mind is, when, when there's letting go of some of the just imperfections of mind that get in our way, get in the way of practice, um, then a meditation practice is possible that, um, that opens up wonderful possibilities. And as the, as the meditation practice is referred to here, when gladness happens in the mind as a result of confidence in um, the teachings and uh, some sense of the proof of their validity and their efficacy, rapture comes. When the mind uh, is experienced as rapturous, the body becomes tranquil. And with that tranquility, uh, a, a wholesome pleasure, a pleasure that doesn't rely on external conditions arises. And in one who feels this pleasure, the mind becomes collected, still, and sometimes we say concentrated. And then we find ourselves uh, in this condition available for the arising of the Brahma-viharas, these divine abidings of which there are four, and again, I expect most people here are aware of them or know of them. Um, The sort of heartfelt, wholesome arising of benevolence toward all beings, compassion, the ability, and the interest in accompanying other beings in suffering. Karuna, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy, but we could think of as parallel to compassion and ability to be fully present when other people are experiencing letting go or when other beings are free. And then finally, equanimity, serving, appearing again in this sort of capstone position, if you will, as the fourth of the four Brahma Viharas. Um, And a practitioner uh, finds themselves pervading, or that the mind, the practitioner abides pervading, where is it? (laughs) I can't find equanimity. There it is. And as all to themselves, a practitioner abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with equanimity. And I would just point out that these references to directions to one quarter are a way of referring to what were taken as the cardinal directions of the time. We might say east, west, north, and south, straight up into the heavens, straight down to the center of the earth. These six cardinal directions, these quarters plus uh, so above below, around, and everywhere to all as to themselves. A practitioner abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. Interestingly, 
This is a wonderful state of mind to be found in the meditation practice, at least as they're developed here in this sutta. Um, but they also can lead, they can be a field for additional things. In this, par- this uh, brief mention, there seems to be an implication that this meditation practice, uh, this arising of the Brahma Viharas can be associated with, with its arising can also arise a deep and clear seeing of things. This appears to be uh, a reference to the four liberating insights or four noble truths as they come down to us in uh, various texts. And this paragraph seems to imply that in this state of mind, um, a practitioner can find, um, you know, great, uh, really deep letting go, uh, a very profound way of being more awake, more free, um, more, um, um, more full-heartedly engaged in, in the world, one's own world and the world uh, that includes other beings in it. So that's a brief trip through um, Majum Nikaya 7. And um, one thing that's not in this condensation, this version that I, I condensed, I should say, and I changed the, uh, the references to bhikkhus and he, uh, just to kind of bring it up to date. Um, one thing that I didn't mention that I really love and that I have a second, it looks like I have, yeah, a minute to read, is, is this passage. Just to give you a sense of how uh, earthy and lovely some of these things can be, um, a bhikkhu, a, a, a practitioner who finds themselves in this state of mind, this state of gathering collectedness and stillness of mind, it says here, with the mind cleared of imperfections like that white cloth, it says this, this uh, practitioner can eat food consisting of the choicest hill rice with various sauces and curries, and even that's not an obstacle for this practitioner. In other words, even those things can be enjoyed fully as part of being in the world and then fully let go of. So it's a lovely thing to think that this, this, um, this deep and profound meditation practice also has this very real world uh, expression that it allows us to, be, um, to live fully, to uh, find our own voices, express the heart fully, uh, delight in others delight delight in our own light delight in our own delight and uh, be prepared to to uh, let go of it all so ying that's my teed up for your for the guided meditation <laughs>